Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service here at the Alumni Association, and we're glad to have you returning to us, or if you're here with us for the first time, we welcome you here as well. My guest this week is Will Peterson. Will is a 2014 grad from Notre Dame, as well as a 2016 grad with his Master's of Education, and we'll get into that in good time. But Will, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Dan. Great to be on here with you. Glad to have you. We'll start at your childhood, as we often do. What are some important memories of your childhood that still stick with you even now as an adult? Oh, gosh. I grew up the third of four boys in five years. Okay. <laughs> My mother's a saint. Yeah. And, She's uh, our next guest. <laughs> yeah. She can tell you a lot about holiness and putting the holy, the scare of the holiness into us. But so just a lot of kind of rough and tumble, a lot of just time with my brothers. And, you know, that meant sports. It meant playing around. We actually had my mom's sister had three boys about our age that were lived six houses down, too. So for me, it's just time together and playing basketball, football on the street and just family, I'd say, mm-hmm. <laughs> being the major core to everything you know, growing up. That's great. Yeah, you don't need to find too many playmates when you've got them right there, right there in the house and down the street. So it sounds like a a fun experience for sure. What about faith? What were some important elements of faith that you remember where you started to understand that this was an important aspect of your family's life? Yeah. So family, I think, meant faith in a lot of ways. Your culturally Catholic family with the cousins, with the extended family. We all were in Catholic grade school together, you know, mass on Sunday, very much so part of every week and the grace before meals and and just kind of an understanding of ourselves or as of the world as Catholic, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up, really everyone we knew, I realize now how this is not as common nowadays, but we went to Catholic school, we engaged with our Catholic family and we went to our Catholic mass. And so the world was really kind of Catholic to us. And so it really just imbued everything around us. That's not to say that we were, you know, constantly in church 24-7 and hitting the knees. Like I said, a lot of rough housing and kind of (laughs) being rough around the edges. But it was just always a given, I'd say, as family was. Yeah, we hear that from a lot of guests that it wasn't something that was spectacular, but just more a regular rhythm of life. And I think that's important because we have those high moments on retreats or uh, pilgrimages. We'll get into your story and we'll talk about, but realistically, there's a lot about faith that is mundane or just the day-to-day rhythm of life. And I think that's important to help establish those expectations with kids when they're growing up, if possible. Yeah. It's amazing. Just the foundation and how I found in my own life, you know, at Notre Dame, how just having had that foundation changed everything at a point when, you know, very much so could have gone a different direction. And so, as we say, it wasn't kind of out front for me of like, you know, how I define myself, but it was a matter of fact and of of presence. Mm -hmm. I think another aspect of childhood, of course, is understanding your gifts and strengths. Are there any stories or elements that you could share with us where, you came to an understanding of 
some of the things that God had blessed you with and the attributes that you had? Well, gosh, what a great question, a fun way to engage in, you know, in that kind of uh, maybe false sense of humility. You tend not <laughs> to really want to bring that type of stuff up. But the memory that comes to mind is actually being the uh, sports commissioner for a student council at All Hallows Academy <laughs> in La Jolla, California, and, and having to go through the election process. And of course, having my older brother's help and having my parents help and go through the whole campaign. And then as the sports commissioner, really all you did was announce the scores from the weekend before, you know, our girls soccer team, our boys basketball team, what have you. And you did it over the PA during the morning announcements, morning prayer time. Well, I decided in order to kind of spice it up a little bit, I would start the announcement of the scores by playing the kazoo. And that was something that had not been part of the sports commissioner's repertoire in the previous year. And But it was my way to kind of individualize it, to entertain people, to try and engage them and, and make it a little more fun. And I was very much supported by my family in it and had a good time. And, you know, it led to getting reelected the next year. And so I think that was a great help. But just finding a way in which I can bring energy that I kind of naturally have. And it can be really kind of an inward energy, but allowing that to come forward. It's a fun memory. I hadn't thought of, about this in years, but uh, definitely God kind of saying, you know, here, do something different in a kind of a fun way. Do what you love in a fun way. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of different ways to inspire people and gateways into those deeper relationships and conversations. So sorry, I, I didn't uh, prep to record the kazoo for the podcast, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. we can all imagine it. <laughs> what about where you grew up? You mentioned California, anything memorable or, or, you know, about your area that where you grew up that really shaped you? Well, San Diego is a pretty culturally Catholic space and it's also a military space. Uh-huh. And, uh, no one in my immediate family in my time that I was growing up served. I have a cousin now who's a captain in the Marines and my grandparents on both sides had served. And, but it just means there's certain kind of values, right? There's the idea of self-sacrifice on the military side, on the, on the culturally Catholic side. There's this idea of the missions, right? And Hunapara Sarah and kind of Catholicism having just been part of what we do. Mm-hmm. The beach, you know, uh, people hear about San Diego and they hear a lot about just the fine weather and, and everything and kind of having that beach so close to you. I tell people, I wonder sometimes like how my subconscious and how I've kind of been psychologically shaped by the fact that you just couldn't go west from where we live. Huh. It was just kind of impossible. There's a giant body of water there. Right. But our culture there with the beach life and everything, it wasn't until I really went to Notre Dame that I found out this is actually a pretty different <laughs> thing <laughs> that where you get the surfers, you know, going for a morning surf before our classes at the high school, you know, things like that. And the guy on the football team, not necessarily being the guy everyone's looking to would be ways in which it shaped it as well. I see. I see. Yeah. That's different than a lot of people elsewhere in the country. And you know, often you hear about San Diego as a, a great place to visit. So, you know, to live there and see the beauty of that weather, that's, that's pretty cool. When you were getting into high school and then starting to think towards college, what were some important moments there where you kind of saw yourself mature both in terms of your faith, but also just academics and those kinds of things? 
Yeah, well, we were fortunate. The local public high school was a pretty rigorous place, and you had a lot of UCSD scientists and professors sending their kids there. So, kind of taught math and science, and kids are going off to the Ivy Leagues every year. So, as a public school, it was a great eye-opening experience to go from Catholic school to public school because. Like my younger brother, he's the comedian in the family. He liked to say, "We discovered Jewish people weren't just in the Bible." You know, like <laughs> it just expanded the horizons right. to just see people from totally different backgrounds, and and it leads to what I thought was a great thing for, and you know, kind of a great reason to encounter go to public high school. In that, in my mind, right as a teenager, you're trying to be a rebel, right? You're trying to be unique and and your own individual. And for me. That really meant a really kind of being proud of my faith、mm. because that's what set me apart from so many of my peers at our high school. You know, it was just kind of a, a pretty bland, not too engaged kind of religiously across the board. So the idea that I could show up and those who have gone to public school, right, or even now who might be adults, know that right, you go to Ash Wednesday Mass, and I can remember sitting down in my biology class that morning and a girl turning around, right, and saying. You got some dirt on your forehead, you know. Like, <laughs> like just to be able to kind of say no, like it's Ash Wednesday, and I, you know, went to mass, and this is making me different. How I really was maturing into my own faith was that opportunity to be an individual in a place and a time when I wanted to be different. I'd say just generally, yeah. You know, so taking you know the courses, taking those seriously, playing basketball at the high school, playing lacrosse, ultimately running track, and just having family there, people. I could rely, and we started an Irish club at the high school for our, you know, kind of really to host Notre Dame football game watches ultimately, but to introduce people to the Irish、uh-huh. culture, and so to lead that, and and to just try and draw people together in a positive way. And I'm seeing, you know, just as we talk about this, seeing how that has led me to kind of where I'm now, but just what I could do to engage with others again in a positive kind of community building way. That's great, great. Thanks for sharing that. You mentioned Notre Dame game watches and such. When did Notre Dame become a part of your life, and when did you start thinking about coming to school here? <laughs> I mean, I think seven years old. My mom made a Notre Dame Fighting Irish leprechaun costume for me to wear to school <laughs> for Halloween. So, just about always, my mother's father and his brothers all went. And my dad's dad, Irish Catholic, out of Sacramento, was a you know Subway alum,、mm-hmm. and so just kind of supported the football team. So we were raised in Notre Dame family in Southern California at the height of the Pete Carroll SC、oh, years. So that、uh-oh. was its own penance. <laughs> yes, but we again kind of a badge of courage. So we we were raised. You know, you watch Notre Dame football on Saturdays, and you know everything is kind of about. Notre Dame, what they're doing. You'll watch Rudy. So from the get go, I had a cousin who graduated in the year two thousand, and we came back for the game. I, so I guess that would have been ninety nine against Nebraska when we were both in the top ten,、right. and, and we fortunately lost that game in overtime. But you know, like it was this magical place. It was so just incredible. It was always just like, yeah, I want to go to Notre Dame. That's what I want to do. And as we got into high school, my parents said. Go to the best Catholic university you can get into. We just would love for you guys to continue Catholic education,、mm-hmm. and we want you to go to the best. And my oldest brother got into and attended Notre Dame. My older brother got into attended Notre Dame, and, and for me, it had always been where I wanted to go. They forced me to apply to a few other places just in case, <laughs> but I、uh, was blessed to get that acceptance note、uh, there in the fall of goodness, you know, two thousand nine. 
And, uh, but yeah, it was always the end goal. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I know that can be a challenge sometimes in families where it is such a beloved place and, you know, admission standards being what they are and just the different mix with each class here can be, it can be really hard when people want to come, but can't just, you know, if there's not enough space available and all those kinds of things, but I'm, I'm glad, you know, for your sake that it, that it worked out. I also know that there's this, the perception of Notre Dame when you're a fan of the, the football team or come to campus for games or, or visits or have siblings here. And then there's the actual experience of being a student here. What were some of those early days like for you when you were realizing that dream and all of a sudden here as a student? Yeah, great point. And again, it was something I reflect on now, like all I really knew when I said I had to go to Notre Dame was about the football team and enjoying the weekends, visiting <laughs> my brothers. So you're exactly right. I got there and, and I think first and foremost, right, coming from the West Coast and just coming from a place where no one else from my high school came, anything like that, you know, just being lonely, I, I think initially and definitely sure. having great community. And I'm still very close with the guys from Section 4A of O'Neill Hall, you know, from our freshman year. But like you come out and you're just cast into this new space and you're trying to figure out, okay, who's the friend group? What's this look like? What's that? And so and trying to figure out what that college courses are all about. And I can remember going to a science course, you know, university requirement on the, in the first week and just coming out and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing in this class. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, well, I guess this is college. I don't know. And, and so just right finding the way. And I was also, we had, I had done some, my father, again, with four boys, he had said, when we got kind of into the high school area, he said, it'd be great for you guys just to know how to kind of handle yourselves. And so we had done some boxing. Okay. And so then my oldest brother did the Bengal bouts sure. when he was there. And so I knew about it and I knew as a freshman, I wanted to do it. And I was thinking I should do pretty well because I've had some experience before with boxing. That's not totally new to me. And I was just really kind of anxious about it, you know, like it just like, oh, gosh, really got to do well. And there's all this anxiety and, you know, figuring out what's going on with college and, and meeting people and, and getting settled. And finally, it was, you know, a Tuesday night, I think, in O'Neill. We were blessed. We had Father Ed Obermiller was our priest in residence. Yep. And we had to eat there just a weeknight mass. And I remember saying to myself, you know what? Like, I've always just kind of gone to mass on Sundays. That's been good enough. But I'm going to pop in tonight and just see how that goes. And, you know, maybe five guys there. And Ed Mack was our rector at the time. I'm sure it was up in the front row. And just the immediate sense of peace and calm. It was just remarkable. And I'll never forget it. And it just kind of so much just went away of, of that anxiety of the worries about being about, you know, studies, what have you. And it was like, wow, I need more of this. And, yeah. and so that opportunity, like, the, I mean, what other place do you get these in your own dorm, you've got a chapel where there is mass in O'Neill Hall, I think like three times a week. And so that just became part of the habit and the routine as well. And, but a major course correction in the first semester or so of my time at Notre Dame. Well, that's great to hear. I'm glad that that was a place where or you found you know some solace there. And we'll get into your faith life at Notre Dame here momentarily. But I think first, I just want to talk about what you studied. What did you end up studying and getting your degree in? Yeah, sure. So I've, I've always been a reader, kind of voracious reader, just love literature and figured 
I guess being an English major allows you to continue doing that and kind of study it. So I was an English major at Notre Dame, just really love literature, reading, kind of just the written word and, and how we express ourselves through it. And that it was a blessing to be an English major because it allowed me to take some courses that weren't necessarily directed toward the major, like some great philosophy courses, got to study abroad in Ireland and take some good courses about Ireland while I was there, and ultimately just continue to come back to some great writing classes, some great literature courses throughout my time. Wonderful. And you mentioned Bengal Bouts. Did you end up participating in Bengal Bouts? And if so, could you explain to the audience, for those who might be unaware, a bit more about what that is? Sure. Yeah. So I did take part my freshman and sophomore years. It's a program, actually, it's pretty fun to get the, you know, the heritage of it. But Newt Rockney, the famous Notre Dame football coach, instituted this program mm-hmm. for boxing in the winter to keep his football players in shape in the late 1920s. And it continued through and became a boxing club at the university where guys train together throughout the fall. And then in the spring, there's a big boxing tournament and all the funds that get raised through the tournament get donated to the Holy Cross missions in Bangladesh. And a lot of fun. You have usually brackets about 16 guys in different weight divisions. And you'll start out in the side arena of the Jack and then the finals hosted, you know, right at center court of the basketball arena there under the lights. It's a couple thousand people. It can be a pretty pretty fun, special experience, certainly. And one that really tests you (laughs) getting in the ring with another guy for three rounds who's trying to knock your head off. (laughs) I was going to say, it is fun. It's fun to watch. I don't know. I never stepped stepped in the ring myself, but uh, kudos to you for for doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, it was a lot. My oldest brother was a senior when I was a freshman. So he kind of got to be my corner guy my freshman year. And that was a cool brotherly bonding experience. And then my older brother was a senior in my sophomore year and got to do something similar before they each entered adult life. It was kind of a last hurrah. It was really just fun to have your local dorm guys support you and the such. And again, a good test of self. Sure. And, and uh, <laughs> you say a lot of prayers for that one too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like it because, you know, as brothers, you were beating up on each other growing yeah. up, but now this was sanctioned, you know. <laughs> once, exactly. Once you got to yeah, I knew the rules, so that helped. <laughs> There's a referee and it's not mom. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's good. So let's move to faith then. You've mentioned this moment of peace in the chapel and the opportunity you had with faith at Notre Dame. What were some ways that you found yourself growing in your faith while you were here? Yeah, so I think really that engagement in attending those masses, being more comfortable with exploring what prayer is and then having conversations with different Holy Cross priests on campus, you know, different friends who were engaged in campus life in that way were major ways in which I was able to engage with faith, especially the first two years. And then great blessing came in the spring of what was that, 2013, I studied abroad in Ireland mm-hmm. and nerding graciously for those who are in Europe in the spring, if you want, you have access to a ticket to the Vatican Easter Mass. Yeah. This was going to be Pope Francis's first Easter Mass. And I said, well, yes, I'd, I'd love to attend. And then there was, a, I think, a follow-up email and it said, well, campus ministry from Notre Dame 
send over John Paul Sean, who was our campus minister at the time, sure. and a theology professor who received his PhD in Rome. And they're going to put together an Easter Trudeau pilgrimage hmm. for anyone who wants, for like $25. And I said, oh, yeah, of course. Like, and again, <laughs> I had engaged with faith and kind of examining it uh, you know, for a couple of years and kind of in my own way. And I was like, well, yeah, this would be a great thing. I hadn't really done a lot with campus ministry before that. Okay. Well, I'm not saying no to this. Sure. And so... This was, you know, Holy Thursday through Easter Sunday, kind of your conventional group, right? We all came together there in Rome from different study abroad programs and had John Paul Sean, had this Notre Dame professor, Paglarini, and we were able to hit the sites, you know, and kind of go to these wonderful holy places and visit these churches and go to Stations of the Cross with Pope Francis at the Colosseum and tour the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel and go to these different masses and prayer services. And it was just so much and it was so great. You know, and you're like one, one holy hotspot after another. <laughs> but I have always been someone who needs those eight hours of sleep. You know, it, it's just kind of, I, I can't get by with six or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, the next day is kind of a lost day. So we're not getting the full eight hours. You're up late, you know, Thursday night visiting the churches, Friday night, the Coliseum with the Pope, Saturday night at the American Jesuit church for Easter vigil. And you're getting up early the next day, each day, right. To, to go to these other spots and to really take advantage of the opportunity. But it meant, I was like, you know what? So Saturday night, it's two in the morning, whatever, and going to bed and I'm getting up at six to get on the Sunday suit to go to the Vatican for Easter mass. And I'm just like, it's been such a great trip and this kind of pilgrimage thing. It's been such a good experience, but I just know I'm not going to really have the energy tomorrow. And it's been great, but that is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so go to bed and wake up and sure enough, kind of groggy, you know, rubbing the eyes and get the the shirt and jacket on. And I go down the stairs of the hostel and my foot hits the pavement right of the street of Rome. And the best I can ever describe it is, is like, I've got lightning coming on my fingertips. It's something I had never experienced this energy just kind of bouncing around and kind of just sending it just through everywhere. And I was like, well, I know that this isn't mine. Yeah. <laughs> I know I, that this, I am not one who can really put this all together. I'm like this is the Holy spirit. And, I, and again, as I mentioned earlier, growing up like pretty kind of conventionally, culturally Catholic mass on Sundays, grace before meals, but we weren't really kind of diving into the gifts of the Holy spirit or anything sure. like that. Or kind of, and I was like, wow, I've never, I don't think I've ever felt the Holy Spirit, yeah. <laughs> or at least not been, you know, registered it. And it just went off down the road to to go to the Easter Mass with Pope Francis. And it, it just really hit me of like, oh my gosh, like, look at what this is and what this means. So that really allowed me to step forward and just be like, oh, faith is real. Like, this is something that exists that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I should maybe continue to explore a bit more seriously. And I'd been fortunate just to have, again, that foundation to like kind of allow me to understand what the experience was and to allow me then to know kind of, okay, next steps on how to just engage with other people to kind of dive into this a bit more. Wow. That's a a powerful story and experience. And as we'll hear, it played into your future, but in the short term, coming off of that high, almost like a transfiguration mountaintop experience or something, What did you notice about how things changed in your faith interactions the rest of your semester abroad, when you came back to campus for senior year, anything that you really sense like the Holy Spirit is still moving here? Yeah, I I think, again, it was was just kind of a bit more of 
accepting it as reality and, you know, faith as reality. And so pursuing and, and as opposed to just kind of sneaking into Tuesday evening mass in the O'Neill Hall Chapel, in addition to the Sunday mass, but kind of going and then finding someone with whom to converse about it afterwards mm. or seeking out. I had a good fortune to do some spiritual direction when I got back to campus senior year uh, with one of the Holy Cross priests, and that was set up through campus ministry. And so allowing conversations to continue and allow it to not be just an individual thing and something I'm kind of just holding on to and trying to figure out for myself, but saying, I recognize this is what I kind of need and what I have. Now I need to go and find a wider community and being blessed at Notre Dame to have that community. That's great. That's great. And oftentimes that senior year, it's a discernment moment, decision point about what's next. What was that time like for you and what did you end up deciding to do? Yeah. Senior year came around and definitely was pretty loose with like, oh, you know, you got to decide what you're doing. I had these ideas of having faith be a factor, was an English major, and you oftentimes hear about teaching. And I did know some people around campus who were involved with the Alliance for Catholic Education ACE program. Mm -hmm. So I ultimately kind of said, you know what, I'll do service. Like this sounds like a good thing. You get to live in community. I think that's pretty cool. You're, you know, working within the Catholic education system. I can teach a little bit and I can kind of take two years to figure things out. So I'll apply to that and that will be my main pursuit. And so interviewed and was fortunately accepted and did the ACE Teaching Fellows Program, which is a Notre Dame run program where you teach in Catholic schools around the United States while living in community with other teachers in the program. In my case, I was in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. And we had, and you have first year and second year teachers typically living together from the program and teaching in different schools. And so it's a lot. It's also a lot more than just volunteering, which is what I thought I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> you have a real job. The first day they put you in front of 30 kids in a high school classroom and give you an English book and say, all right, here you go. And I said, well, I, I thought I was just doing service for two years. I, I didn't think I'd actually <laughs> have to really kind of make this work. And so it was a great experience to do summer coursework back at Notre Dame. So I kind of weaned myself off of the University of Notre Dame by having two extra summers. Sure. <laughs> and uh, you, of course, have coursework during the year while you're in, in your different cities. And at the end of the two years, you're fortunate to graduate with a master's education from the University of Notre Dame. So one of those things where in the, mo in the midst of it, you're not necessarily probably all that thrilled with your decision uh -huh. for where you ended up post-college, but then... The two, you know, the years after you're in it, you look back and say it was a character building, you know, positive experience. Sure. Yeah. You learn a lot about yourself in those moments. And we've had some ACE folks on others as other guests on the podcast. And they talk about that, the intensity of that first year of teaching and what they learned about themselves. So I'm glad you had the chance to do that. And, and you were serving, but just in a, you know, a deeper way than you probably had ever done so before. Yes, definitely a, a bit more involved. And I think the major, the two major takeaways uh, on kind of the faith side of that experience sure. and also just kind of life. The first one was that reliance on God. Cause I can remember I was in charge of supervising the students in the morning before classes. So at seven twenty, I had to go down to the gym and just the kids would be coming in right for an hour before classes started yeah. and they would just funnel them there. 
and you'd watch these kids guzzling a two liter of Mountain Dew or just kind of working themselves into a frenzy and say, I have to teach this kid today. And you could look out the window and you could see, I could see my car. And I can remember, I would, I would think to myself, and I would think it was the most rational thought in the world. I'd say, I can just leave. I can just walk out the door and hop in my car and no one would really blame me because like, this is just a lot. I'm a little overwhelmed. But each day saying, no, you know, Lord, I'm going to trust, get me through today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and you did. And then you, went, you had the whole same process the next day. But just that kind of like, all right, I'm just going to kind of rely and know that there's something else out there that's going to pull me along. The other great takeaway, again, going back to the growing up in San Diego, a, a pretty unique experience there. And then to be in Memphis, Tennessee, which is totally a different space sure. in so many cultural, you know, geographic ways, and recognizing people live life so totally differently than how I have lived life. But that is not bad or wrong. It's simply different. Mm-hmm. And I think I, you kind of can get it instilled in you that like, well, this is what I did and this is how my family raised me and that's what works. But to see other people living totally differently and having to just say, no, this is simply different, not wrong, not not bad, not anything more than that. And so to kind of come to that understanding and embracing, I'd say, a lot kind of more of a multicultural understanding of the beauty of our society, as opposed to like, well, I know it works. I'm going to tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great way to be stretched and to not only just in terms of faith, but interpersonal relationships and music and cultural things like that. So an education on the side, on top of your your master's degree as well. Yes, yes. Did you think about continuing teaching or what what was kind of the decision after you completed the ACE program? So I was pretty comfortable with stepping back from full-time teaching at the end of those two years, at least for a bit. I kind of said, you know, I need a break and I... Did, you know, again, kind of had the prayer life and and was trying to make sure that was part of the process and continued to just pray and, and see what was going on and just come, come back to this idea of pilgrimage mm-hmm. and hospitality, pilgrimage and hospitality. And I, was, and I moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and I started working as the peace and justice coordinator for the Newman Center there at the University of Kentucky Okay, and ultimately really kind of working directly with the Catholic Congolese refugee population there, which was a great experience, but wow. kind of subbing a little bit on the side and, you know, a lot of kind of part-time stuff and just like, well, what, what am I doing? And I kept coming back and was like, well, that pilgrimage that I did through Notre Dame and Rome, that really had an impact. Mm. And I probably should have thrown this in there when you asked, you know, what happened after that pilgrimage experience. When I came back to Notre Dame, I was really enthused to pursue kind of ideas of, okay, what does it mean to live the faith? And for whatever reason, came across hospitality as a way of living faith. And sure. And like, what's, what's that mean? And, and, and how do we engage with it? And so my senior year, spring break, my buddies were all going to, I think, to Punta Cana <laughs> and they taking a week there. And I said, I'm going to do something a little different. And I, went on the Amtrak website and I said, how far West can I get on a train from Chicago, you know, before it's kind of just too long of a train ride? Right. What, what would be a good place to stop? And there was a stop in Rugby, North Dakota. Hmm. And most people don't know Rugby, North Dakota. It claims to be the geographic center of North America. That's kind of the, the major tourist uh, note okay. of it. Okay. <laughs> it's a very, very small town. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to go to rugby and I, I could Google. I said, they've got a Catholic church there. I've got a parish and I'll just see if someone will put me up for a couple of days. Wow. So hopped on a train out of Chicago on, on the Amtrak there and went west for about 19 hours and got off in rugby in the middle of the morning. And I was like, all right, I'm here. And start, and there's still snow on the ground, definitely not like Punta Cana. <laughs> and uh, walking around and I get to the parish and I'm kind of nervous because I'm not really sure what exactly I'm doing. And I knock on the rectory door and the priest comes to the door and he says, yes. And I said, well, hello, I'm traveling through. And I was wondering if you knew of a place I could stay. And father says, well, you know, there's some nice motels out on uh, on the highway, a couple miles you know, south of here. And I think I honestly maybe didn't really have cash on me or like kind of I was trying to kind of say, I'm going to have to rely on people. Huh. And I said, and I, and I kind of just blurted it all out. Well, I've been doing this stuff, studying hospitality and St. Francis and Dorothy Day and <laughs> was thinking maybe some Catholic person might be able to host me just for the couple nights before I take a train back. And he kind of just looks at me and, oh, okay, well, that's a, that's a little different. <laughs> I, I, I've heard this before, I guess, but right. we, it just so happens we have a free room here in the rectory. Do, do you have an idea? <laughs> I think I pulled out my Notre Dame student ID and say, yeah, I can show him a student. And, and he put me up for a couple of days and, and I just kind of got to walk around the countryside there. And I remember the next day I just went walking through the fields and I'm down some dirt road and all of a sudden I, I – feel a presence coming up behind me and it's the sheriff has pulled up behind me and kind of flicks the lights lights and I stop and the and here you know clearly someone has said who the heck's this guy with a backpack just kind of wandering through the <laughs> right. farmland the sheriff says you know what, what's going on here and I said and I explained myself oh, I'm staying with father down at the rectory and he, he kind of looks at me and he okay and he goes back to his car and riddles it in and he must have gotten confirmation and he came out and all of a sudden he was my best friend. Oh, it's so great you're here. We love to, you know, welcome to rugby. And uh, <laughs> you should really go, you know, left at the next at the next turn. That's a real scenic spot. And I'm like, well, we, it's a lot of farmland here, like, but I appreciate it. I was the special guest at the local Catholic elementary school the next morning. The sisters were running it. And they're like, well, here's this guy who just kind of showed up. And so it was such a phenomenal experience. It's just like, I know that this hospitality exists in the mm. U.S. Catholic Church. Clearly, sure. I, I've kind of been able to live it. But oftentimes, you know, we can kind of find ourselves building these walls. and every, So this is now to flashback forward after ACE. I'm just like, you know, pilgrimage is so great and hospitality is so great. What if we, you know, kind of combine them? And, and I've never done the Camino de Santiago. Your listeners, if they hear more about what I'm doing with my work now, they might be like, "What the heck?" But I knew about it. I knew these things of walked pilgrimage and you know the Catholic tradition. And I said, "Well, what if we just did one here? What if I just start right where I am, mm -hmm. you know, my own front door, and I go to a place that you know consider kind of a holy site to bring you know prayers there and stay with people along the way." And the Abbey of Gethsemane is a Trappist monastery in central Kentucky. Sure. And Thomas Merton had been a monk there, who's a great spiritual writer of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And he had been a spiritual guide for me, my back end of my Notre Dame time, my time in ACE. I had done retreat at the Abbey with a couple of my ACE buddies from Memphis one weekend uh, over a break. And so buddy David Cable, who was in 4A of O'Neill Hall with me, did ACE with me, was teaching in Indianapolis at the time. And I said, how about over your spring break? And actually, it's pretty fun because it was March of 2017. It was five years ago that we did this. I said, what if you took your spring break to walk with me 75 miles over four days to the Abbey of Gethsemane? Wow. 
<laughs> God bless him because he said yes. <laughs> Which most people I don't think would give up a spring break of you know of teaching. You got the time off to do that. And he said, sure, I'll, I'll join you. So it was just this great space. I had this opportunity to kind of discern and have room to explore as opposed to necessarily having to be in the classroom every day. And so we did it. We and we we found two parishes along the way where, where people lay hosts from the parishes were willing to host us. And the third night we stayed in an interfaith homeless shelter and we just walked each day through the back roads of uh, central Kentucky and just beautiful. Well, it rained the whole time the first day, but uh, <laughs> other than that, very beautiful, very scenic. And the hospitality just was incredible. There were these people opening their homes to us who didn't know us and you break bread together, you have a good time, have conversation and, and then get into the abbey and, and meeting the monks and getting to go to Merton's Hermitage with one of the monks who had him as his novice master and interviewed Brother Paul Quentin about Thomas Merton and pilgrimage and being a monk in this prayerful space. And we just spent a couple of days in prayer there and left and looked at each other and like, well, that was incredible. And we really think this would be a positive for more people to engage in this type of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, adventurous and a lot of trust there that that you had in, in these experiences, but it came out so positively that it seemed to lead to spur you on. So how did that factor into some of your future decision? We said, well, let's make this happen. Let's do more of these pilgrimages for young people. You know, we, we want young adults to engage with faith. We think this is kind of a cool way where you get to be out in nature, you're kind of not necessarily doing something institutional. It really can engage with young people where they're at now. But we also had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, like, we're just a couple of guys who had decided to walk down these back roads in Kentucky for a couple of days and like find you. Know, so I forget even how we determined the name Modern Catholic Pilgrim, but we said, well, let's call this movement or whatever we're doing Modern Catholic Pilgrim. And now, since then, we found people can kind of struggle with that. And the funny, the funny thing is they can think I am calling myself the modern Catholic pilgrim. It's not a personal brand. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the only pilgrim out here. Really, that all of us could be these modern Catholic pilgrims because it's been so cool to just engage with the tradition of it and the church and everything. But so anyway, we started reaching out to some different Catholic colleges, some different people and just saying, hey, you know, we've been doing this stuff. And they said, oh, it really, really sounds pretty cool. Oh, wait, we just kind of talked to our lawyers. You guys aren't any kind of legal entity. And I don't know if we can trust our students to walk with you, yeah. you know, along the highway. Uh, Kentucky is not super Catholic, you know, itself. Sure. I think 4% of the population. And, and I, it's not where my roots are. So we did something and had a lot of good support. And it was a great first effort. And we had an idea of what we wanted to do beyond that. But it just lost momentum for a bit. So ultimately moved back to San Diego and started teaching at a Catholic K-8 there and had an opportunity to just talk with some people who said, you know, it'd be great. Just why not come back to that pilgrimage idea here? Hmm. And as we've already talked about, it is a very culturally Catholic place. There is this mission system. The, the first Catholic churches founded there on the West Coast, which sure. is now the United States and you know, still active and they are within walking distance of each other over a couple of days, you know, between, between them and said, great. All right, let's make this happen. So 2018, we took our first really kind of group. And I think it was 12 young adults walked from mission San Diego to mission San Luis Rey along the Southern California coast 
three days, 50 miles mm. and stayed with hosts from parishes along the way for the two nights on the road. And just had, we just had a blast. I mean, just the opportunity to walk and talk together. And then you go to these homes and again, that hospitality aspect where we meet back up the next morning and we have two of the young ladies talking about how Elizabeth, their host, you know, they had a great meal together and then they ate ice cream and they watched some fun YouTube furry pet videos <laughs> and said some prayers together. And then, you know, called it a night. And like some of the guys, their hosts were flambéing a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> like just amazing things. We met a guy and one of our hosts, you know, had no idea when he signed up and he's telling his faith story, mm. right? We kind of all get to share our stories and he's from England. And his parents, when he decided to convert to Catholicism at like 18 or 19 years of age, his family essentially disowned him wow. you know, and said, like, this is, you know, not what we do. And he said, well, I feel committed to this faith and like left the country and just kind of had to live his own life. And, and like, wow, you know, here we are thinking we're the really, you know, brave ones walking for a weekend and you gave up everything, you know, and just, but someone who had never he wouldn't be on a podcast. He wouldn't be, you know, speaking to people. And so just that opportunity to just go into people's lives for a kind of a brief time in prayer, in, in space, in, in this kind of spiritual prayerful space it was just great. It was just reaffirmed what we were doing. And so that kind of just kicked us down the road and said, okay, let's keep making this happen. Let's keep this modern Catholic pilgrim thing going. Let's let's find more ways in other places in the country, you know, here in Southern California to get young people and ultimately everybody on pilgrimage. Yeah, that's very powerful. And I think there is something special about a pilgrimage that can bring those elements out in the conversations and then just the, the traveling together on the road kind of thing. There's a lot of scriptural allusions there, of course, how did you see this grow in, into something that you thought maybe you could really sink your teeth into it and and commit you know a fuller amount of your time and career to this? Yeah, so I think having that positive experience with the young adults there in 2018 really invited us to consider how this was something that would be truly beneficial and not just simply a good experience that my buddy and I had in Kentucky, but something that really people can benefit from and will respond to. At the time, I, like I said, I was still teaching full-time at a Catholic K-8, so it was really just kind of a side project. But ultimately, we said, well, we want to be a legal entity. You know, we want people to be able to engage with this in a real way sure. and kind of be official. So we went through the process of becoming a nonprofit organization, you know, official 501c3 in 2019, and we got the you know approval to be a nonprofit of the Diocese of San Diego, so recognized as an official Catholic organization. And we said in 2019, okay, let's continue offering these multi-day pilgrimages for young adults, but we want really everyone to have this experience of pilgrimage because it is something that's been rooted in our faith ever since the beginning of the Christian practice of people were going to the sites associated with Christ's life, death, and resurrection sure. within 100, 150 years of his resurrection. People were going to the catacombs in Rome to visit you know, the burial sites of Saints Peter and Paul within 100, 150 years of their deaths. Like, this has just been something that's been happening for so long. But here in the United States, our culture of it is not too kind of built out. And if it is, it's typically like, okay, what's what's a group bus tour, you know, to this place or you know, where we fly into, <laughs> right. or let's go to the Holy Land, let's go to Rome. It's like, no, I mean, we can be pilgrims in our own communities, 
And Thomas Merton, you know, not surprisingly, continues to be a guiding light for us. And he has a great line in an essay on pilgrimage where he says that the geographic pilgrimage is the symbolic acting out of an inner journey. You can have one without the other. It's best to have both. Hmm. So just that opportunity, we're all on this pilgrimage to heaven, right? This lifelong journey. We want to see our, we are a pilgrim church, Vatican II. It's all in kind of the language of it. But we really need to actually walk that pilgrimage to know what it means to be on that symbol, you know, that inner journey. And a lot of people don't have the you know capacity to take five weeks to walk the Camino de Santiago, have the propensity to be able to afford to fly to Rome and you know spend thousands of dollars on a, on a pilgrimage there. So okay, let's allow people that experience here in the United States, not just young adults with these multi-day walk pilgrimages. Let's have one-day pilgrimages you know, in different places where anyone can take part. And so we had one, you know, here, I live now in Minneapolis. We did one here in July of 2019 for the Feast of St. Anne. And we just had people gather and walk from a church named for St. Anne to the Basilica of St. Mary here, which is a beautiful, beautiful church and has a relic of St. Anne. Hmm. And just, it was one day and we got to walk for a couple hours together and, and pray at these places and conclude with a meal and Yes, you know, people just respond and they're able, it's a very social form of prayer. You know, sure. like you talked about the scriptural references. We look at those disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they walked with Christ yep. and he talked to them on the way. Like your conversation is prayer on pilgrimage. You know, you're active, you're outside, all that. So we became a nonprofit beginning of 2019. I think we had like a hundred pilgrims over the course of like 10 pilgrimages in 2019. And uh, then 2020, we started with kind of a similar programming and I was still teaching. And then with the pandemic hitting, right, you know, just shut everything down. Amazing how the Holy Spirit continues to work. So I was still in San Diego at the time and my parents are are both walkers. That's their exercise, especially in the afternoon, at kind of the end of the day, go for a walk. So when I would finish my distance, you know, Zoom teaching for the day, I would go over there and and try and probably, you know, steal a dinner out of of my parents' place, (laughs) but also go for a walk with them. And, Everyone was out walking because that was all you could do. Right. <laughs> I'm looking around like, well, this is what we want people to do, but we want to kind of give them this directedness, this purpose of pilgrimage with these walks. So we are, we have our small MCP team, you know, people are bored and, and people who are gracious to give time, kind of monthly meetings and check-ins. So I just sent a text to them. I said, what do you guys think? This was mid-April. I said, what do you guys think? Can we do something for May? Like, you know, pilgrims for May, get people on pilgrimage. And they said, yeah, sure. I, I think so. And, uh, that sounds like a decent idea. I said, okay, great. You know, how, what should we, what should our goal be? How many pilgrimages should we shoot for? And, and uh, I didn't really get any responses for maybe, you know, a little bit and long enough for me to go ahead and put something on the website and, and record a video and say 300 pilgrimages for Mary. Hmm. And I get back from the group like, well, maybe 50, <laughs> maybe a hundred. I said, well, we already said 300. So, so we just have to make that work. And so two weeks before May 1st, we're just word of mouth, social media, that stuff like, hey, here's some free basic resources on how to be a pilgrim for Mary. Wherever you are in the world, you can go to your local parish. You can, there's a statue of Mary somewhere. And we had just go there on pilgrimage, lift your prayers and intentions to Mary, return home. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, over 350 pilgrimages in like 35 states, 80 cities, six countries. It was so phenomenal, just the response. And it was a great way to recognize how people were dying, you know, and still are, right, for like kind of that spiritual nourishment. And we had people who 
were older and especially right in the, that height of the initial lockdown, a lot of worries about leaving the home. And so they were really kind of shut in and said, well, we'd like to take part. We've got a statue of Mary in our backyard. I said, as long as you know where you're going, in this case, into your backyard, you know, and you've got your intentions and you've got whatever intentions you want to bring to Mary, you're making pilgrimage. And yeah. So you've got a great picture of them in their backyard. Like we made <laughs> pilgrimage. You know, we have these families at their local parishes, just shrines, what have you. Just the response that came in was so great. And it really allowed us to increase our reach through kind of doing more of the social stuff and people being able to make pilgrimage wherever they are instead of our kind of having to lead them. Uh, directly. It was just such a great, great opportunity. We said, well, I think let's step out into, into this. Let's focus in and and see where this can go. And so it was kind of July 2020 that I was able to really step into a role and step back from teaching anything like that and focus full time on this nonprofit and on building up what Modern Catholic Pilgrim is today. Hmm. Yeah. Another amazing story of trust and listening to the movement of the Holy Spirit and going with it. So thanks for sharing that. How does this all fit into your understanding of your vocation? We've talked about different people you've encountered along the way and being inspired by their vocation. What about your own vocation? How is this all factored into that? Yeah, a great question. I think the vocation is to, as I mentioned earlier, like I said, I really appreciate your question about like as a youth, kind of any kind of memory of the gifts from God. And I mentioned finding that positive way to engage with community Mm -hmm. to really kind of draw people in. And so I think the vocation really is our mission statement for modern Catholic pilgrim is to deepen faith and build community across the United States through walked pilgrimage in the Catholic tradition. So I think that opportunity to allow people to deepen faith and in a way that is not kind of off putting, it's very engaging, it's very welcoming, very open, you know, an opportunity to really kind of, come directly to God, Christ, through Mary and the saints on these pilgrimages, and then that community aspect. And so finding ways to allow those encounters, like the ice cream and watching the furry pets videos between, you know, host and pilgrims, finding ways to have a local high school student walking with, you know, a community elder on a pilgrimage for racial justice and reconciliation on the north side of Minneapolis, finding ways for people to live out that community, that hospitality that, that we're called to as Christian faithful. Uh, so I am fortunate that I, you know, am given this opportunity to walk with people, to share the journey and to give them a sense of how they're diving into what we call, you know, like the Emmaus model. And so that idea from the gospel of Luke, where you have these disciples leaving Jerusalem after Christ's crucifixion, and, you know, they're seeking answers. They're kind of confused. They're not really sure what's going on. And they leave their community and they start walking. And Christ, you know, meets them on the way. And they don't necessarily recognize him as Christ. And they talk to each other, you know, and they have this opportunity to just hear from him and encounter him. And so you encounter your fellow pilgrims as the person of Christ. And, you you know, they get to Emmaus. They invite Christ in for a meal. So our pilgrims get to their Emmaus. And there's that hospitality aspect. There's the meal. It can be kind of a Eucharistic point, but you lift your prayers to Christ. You invite him into the heart. And then he breaks bread, right, with these disciples in Emmaus. And that's when the scales come off their eyes and they see him as the risen Christ in his full glory. So there can be that Eucharistic aspect, but also, again, simply being in community, recognizing Christ's presence. And then that passage just continues to just really kind of root uh, how I try to envision life. 
but Christ leaves. And if you look at the actual gospel passage, they don't even get a full sentence of the disciples <laughs> recognizing him as the risen Christ. Yeah. They get, it's the first is the first clause of the sentence. And the second clause is he left their midst. And I just, it's like that cosmic humor of God. You know, this is the single most transcendent moment in human history. People seeing Christ risen from the dead and it's not even given a full sentence. He's gone, but they don't pity themselves. They don't say, oh gosh, what the heck? Why didn't he stick around? We need answers. They're just fired up that they had that experience and they had that great line where our heart's not burning within us when he opened up scripture to us and talked to us on the road. Yeah. And they it says they immediately ran the seven miles right, back. They run back. Yeah. Yeah. They run, they don't wait. They don't even wait the next day. It's, it's middle of the night and they're running back to their community. They don't, you know, they're not stopping at places along the way. They're not just kind of going door to door in Emmaus. They go to their everyday community. And so my vocation, I see this kind of opportunity to live everyday life and then provide space for people to step away from everyday life as needed because mm-hmm. it is so crucial just to get away from time to time for this side, you know, set aside for prayer and a very kind of simple form of prayer. I'm going to walk from A to B, put one step in front of the other. My nights are provided for me and my meals are provided for me. And I just have to kind of carry these intentions. A third grader can do that. No problem, but it's not simplistic. You know, there's a, like we just said, there's a, kind of this Emmaus sense, there's encounter with Christ but then we're called to return home changed, you know, set on fire and come back to the everyday, changing ourselves, you know, changing our community, be it our local faith community, our school community, you know, our work, our family, and have that opportunity as opposed to just like, oh, I want to stay on pilgrimage forever. No, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, we have to come back. And so I'm blessed with this vocation to engage with people kind of across all different lines to come together, walk together and encounter Christ and then come back into everyday life set on fire really to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of replicating your stepping out of the door at Rome experience (laughs) to coming back from Emmaus, you know, helping recreate that for people. In our preparation for the podcast, you'd mentioned your wife. So I just wanted to acknowledge that you are married. And if anything about that in terms of, you know, how you grew to the vocation of marriage and what you've learned about yourself in that. Of course, right. I, I do have to acknowledge my, my wife, Katie, uh, clearly a great, greatest blessing really in my life. And so I think just recognizing you know, I don't have all the answers <laughs> and I can go on this you know, podcast and I can make myself sound like a real kind of holy guy and, and, and know what's going on. But at the end of the day, I just found someone who leads me deeper. You know, I talked about the mission of the organization for people to deepen faith, but been blessed with my wife, Katie. She really leads me to deepen my faith in the simple everyday things mm-hmm. in saying, hey, let's take some time to seek out an opportunity for prayer. Let's, we're not going to gossip about so-and-so. <laughs> sure. So just finding like, because I think for a lot of my life, it was kind of, I can do this on my own. And uh, holiness is a one person's path only, but you have to have the people who host you. You have to have the community. And so I need my wife very much so to help me on that path, you know, on that journey toward heaven. So it's been great. She's wonderful to support leading this organization. And, and she's been like a great caboose for a number of pilgrimages. So <laughs> she, you know, making sure everyone gets where they need to right, be. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's been a lot of fun for us, 
just to encounter so many wonderful people now really throughout the country in making pilgrimage and in being a married couple. And now we are, we're expecting our own little pilgrim oh, at the beginning of July. Congratulations. And so kind of what that next step looks like, we're hopeful that the stroller can make its appearance on some of these <laughs> pilgrimages uh, as well. Yeah. I got to get one of those off-roading dro- you know, jogging strollers yeah. or something for the pilgrimage. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I mean, that what a wonderful description of marriage in the sense of helping each other grow in holiness on the way to heaven. And I think that's yeah. a, a beautiful aim for marriage and a beautiful witness. And I hear what you're saying in terms of, because I hear a lot from guests and I feel it myself sometimes of, well, who am I to be talking about holiness or, you know, I'm not, I don't have it all figured out. And when we were first conceiving of the podcast, we talked about, well, should we call it everyday saints? And we said, no, because we're not saints yet you know, on this side of heaven. And so yeah. it's, it's a work in progress. And, but I think it's inspiring to know that there are other people who are works in progress. And so as we wrap up, I, I always like to ask people about some of their models of holiness, first of all, and then how they're pursuing holiness in your, in their own life. So for you, who have been some of the models of, of holiness in your life? Well, I started this whole thing talking about family. And so, you know, I come back to my you know, grandparents, just very faith-filled people. My, you know, we call them Papa Toddy. We had my, uh, we had Gramps. We had Nani Kate and Grandma Ruth, just all four. And my Papa George, who went to Notre Dame, died before I was born. But just hearing stories about him and just people who lived faith-filled lives. And I got to witness that, which was a great blessing. You mentioned the saints, but I like saints as like a, a lowercase sure. s, you know? And so I referenced Thomas Merton and I was just thinking of his line as you're talking right now about everyday holiness, where he has the line, for me to be a saint means to be myself. And I think mm. that's been a great opportunity. And again, in marriage has been great in that I have found someone who helped me feel more comfortable being my true self. And, and according to Merton, that's really what it means to be a saint. It's just mm. simply to be ourselves. And as we say that, you know, our self is certainly not perfect. And it, we wouldn't be very interesting if we were perfect. So <laughs> Merton continues to be a guide as well. Just recently, Sister Thea Bowman, uh, who's a servant sure. of God, has become a, a guiding light. So one thing I do, I do want to mention, because we've found it to be a great blessing in what we're doing with these pilgrimages, we do pilgrimage for racial justice and reconciliation. Yeah. And we, we now do that under the banner of walking together, which stems from some great lines from Sister Thea, who was a black Catholic nun who joined an all white order out of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. out of Mississippi. The sisters from the congregation up there in Wisconsin had been the had been the sponsors of the school she had grown up in and she just lived a tremendous life and really engaged in what it meant to be a Roman Catholic, you know, sister and also what it meant to be a black woman in the United States Mm -hmm. and especially in the civil rights movement and into the second half of the 20th century and really just lifted up the beauty of a multicultural church. And she famously addressed the USCCB, you know, the conference of Catholic bishops here in 1989. And she said, if we walk and talk and work and pray and stand together in Jesus's name, we'll be who we say we are truly Catholic. Hmm. And so we kind of really latched onto that and said, 
yes, let us walk together, you know, share this journey. So she has been just a wonderful guiding light. We do pilgrimage in, you know, we have walking together in Memphis where we started the cathedral and we go to her actual grave site and then to the National Shrine of St. Martin de Porres, who's the patron saint of racial reconciliation. We have walking together Louisville, where we've had these keynote speakers come and speak about issues around racial justice, reconciliation in the Catholic Church, and walk and pray together and have a great gospel mass to conclude. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're doing these different opportunities with uh, other groups, congregations, parishes, schools, etc. But she just, in my personal life, has been such a, a grace and someone who lived her true self and, and allows us to see the benefits of that. So I would acknowledge her as well. And then the last one would be Blessed Charles de Foucault, who was a Frenchman, the kind of latter half of the 1800s, early 1900s, who, like Thomas Merton, lived a pretty vice-filled life for the you know first half of his life and was really kind of just out for himself and seeking his own pleasures and found that ultimately lacking. I think that resonates with so many of us, you know, young people today who have been kind of been told by the, you know, wider society that we want to, you know, just self-satisfy. That's kind of the goal. And we find that lacking. And he ultimately then converted himself to a faith that really was about encounter with others. And he didn't necessarily become a hermit, but he moved down to North Africa and just lived with the Tireg people who were a nomadic group, none of whom were Christian. And he just simply lived as a presence and just wanted to be the universal brother. And so I think that's just been a great blessing in my own life to just see how we are called to live that quiet life of Christ in a lot of ways, just being present to others in the same way that Sister Thea was same way that Merton was and the same way certainly that my parents and grandparents are and were. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. Those are beautiful and timely witnesses for all of us. And so glad to, to share those with the audience. As a last question, I'll turn it back to you and your life. What have been some of the effective ways for you to pursue holiness in your own life? I have found a, a great blessing is prayer time in the morning or, you know, just like that set a time and set it aside as that contemplative prayer time. So I guess it doesn't have to be in the morning for people, depending on how their schedule works. But for me, it's, you know, waking up, having breakfast and then just sitting down and, and reading a little scripture and then just kind of sitting (laughs) and, and not expecting too much from it and just kind of trying to be present to the presence of Christ and, and, and the Holy Spirit and spend 20, 30 minutes, as much kind of as long as possible, uh, just have that time in the morning and make sure that I, I have it. And then my wife and I get a lot of good out of sharing God encounters with each other at the end of the day. Hmm. And we go through our intentions that we have, that we pray each day, different people, you know, different things going on in the world. And then as we're getting ready for bed, we just share with each other, I encountered God at this point, you know, and kind of try to name a pretty specific experience in that day. And I just find with that routine in place, we start to encounter, you know, see God more. (laughs) And it's fun because it goes from just kind of recognizing at the end of the day to like recognizing it in the moment and then being like, oh, now I'm going to share this at the end of the day with my wife. And so just saying those things, it can be such a gift because even on like the, the tough days, at the end of the day, still looking back and saying, actually, even on this tough day, I can still name three, six, you know, 12 times that I really like felt God's presence. Hmm. So those have been great routines for us just to dive into and, and hold on to for kind of personal prayer. 
That's really inspiring. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time. Well, it's been a really enjoyable conversation. I hope it will be a God moment for those who listen to this. It certainly has been for me, been really edified by hearing your life and inspired by the trust that you've had this whole way. And know of our prayers for your future family and and your future ministry. People can go to moderncatholicpilgrim.com if they're interested in working with you and in their local parish diocese, anything like that. So I hope that this podcast brings some awareness to that. But just thank you, Will, for your witness and your ministry in the church in in the modern world, shall we say. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Thank you. This was a great, you asked some great questions that that caused me to have to reflect on things I hadn't really thought about and maybe even ever. So I really appreciate your giving me this opportunity to do that. And certainly uh, I will be sharing this you know, experience as a God encounter with my wife tonight. That's great. That's great. The Holy Spirit continues to move. So thanks for, yes. thanks for that time. Yeah. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. For future episodes of the podcast, we invite you to either subscribe to a podcast service of your choosing as well as to sign up for our Faith ND Daily Gospel Reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. There you'll receive a reflection for the day, as well as future episodes of the podcast. And as one last reminder, if you're interested in working with Will, you can reach out to him at moderncatholicpilgrim.com. Thanks for being with us, and until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Mm -hmm.